As the choir comes down, let's turn to Acts chapter 12 in your Bibles. Continuing our study of the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells us all that Jesus continued to do and teach through his apostles uh, after Jesus had uh, risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. He continues to work. He continues to build his church. It continues to push out the boundaries from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And today we see that he's going to do that despite fierce opposition to those who hate his kingdom, who hate his church, the church of Jesus Christ. This is pertinent to us today because we see the enemies of Christ growing in boldness, the enemies to the church who would desire to stamp it out, and we can easily become discouraged as we see the evening news, we see brothers and sisters throughout the world being persecuted for their faith, and we see the, kind of the writing on the wall in the uh, United States as we see morality declining, as we see uh, the venom against Christianity growing harsher, and uh, it worries us, makes us concerned about the future and the future for our children and what difficulties lie ahead for the church. And I think this passage will embolden us and encourage us in our day. Acts 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. 
Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. Suppose one summer day, one fine summer day, you went out strolling through the French countryside uh, without a care in the world. And suppose that place was Verdun. And suppose it was the year 1916. Or suppose you were strolling through the Pennsylvania countryside in the town of Gettysburg in July of 1863 without a care in the world. Well, in either of those scenarios or any other scenario we might mention, uh, you would likely to, to be shot because you would be walking through a battlefield and you might not even be aware of it. Well, in the Christian life, or actually anybody's life, whether you are aware of it or not, you're in the middle of a war, a spiritual war. The Bible makes it clear that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. And this is true, and we see spiritual warfare going on here, almost literal warfare going on here between the church and the enemies of the church. And we want to talk about that a little bit today. I've got three points that I want to draw from this passage. First, Christ's kingdom has violent opponents. Duh, uh, you say? Certainly it does. We see it on the evening news every night. Let's explore that a little bit in a moment. Christ's kingdom has we weapons for this warfare. And we will talk about those weapons a little bit. And then finally, and best of all, Christ's kingdom has certain victory. So let's look at this first one. Christ's kingdom has violent opponents. You notice in verse 1 it says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. This earthly king, uh, the king of Judea, not a, a, any kind of great king, not a, a massive territory, uh, actually under the Romans, but this king, he seeks to stamp out Christ's kingdom by putting to death some of its key leaders. He puts, to, he puts to death James, the brother of John, and he also has Peter thrown in prison. Well, first of all, who was this man? There's a, there are a number of Herods in the Bible, and it's, easily, it's easy to get them confused. So let me give you the family tree here, since I'm into to genealogical research. And uh, first of all, this person that we're talking about is Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa. His grandfather was Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king at the time of Jesus' birth. Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa's grandfather, was the one who sought to kill Jesus when he was the newborn king. And he uh, slaughtered all the male children in and around Bethlehem because he was trying to put this so-called Messiah to death because he wanted to be the king. 
So this, uh, this uh, Herod Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great. He was also the, the uncle, uh, his uncle was Herod Antipas. And now Herod Antipas was the Herod that we read about who put uh, John the Baptist to death by beheading him because he was at a party and he didn't want to be embarrassed and, and so he uh, has uh, John the Baptist beheaded. And Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa's uncle, is also the one to whom Jesus was sent by Pontius Pilate. And Jesus wouldn't even speak to Herod Antipas. And because he wouldn't say anything, uh, Herod Antipas had Jesus uh, dressed and they dressed in royal robes and they treated him with contempt and mocked him. And now we see this Herod in our text, Herod Agrippa. Uh, he's carrying on the old family tradition of hatred and wickedness to Christ and his people. He opposed Christ and, and murdered the apostles all because verse 3 tells us he wanted to please the Jews. He was a, he was a man pleaser. Uh, he wanted to curry favor with people. He was a man pleaser, Christ hater, apostle murderer. So he murders James, has him put to death, and now he has his sights set on Peter. He arrests Peter and puts him behind bars, chains him, and then enlists four squads of soldiers to guard him. A squad consisted of four men. So there were two on either side of Peter in the prison, two guarding the door of the locked prison, and then the rest rotated in every three hours. So round-the-clock guard for this, for Peter. Why? Why this venom against Peter and against the church? The apostles were not violent opponents of Herod's. Uh, they, they were not... Uh, violently opposing Rome. They were not uh, rising up in the streets and causing riots and protest. No. What did they do? They went around healing people. They fed widows and orphans. They showed generosity to those in need. You wouldn't kill someone for improving life in general, would you? Certainly not these things. So what else did the apostles do? But well, most importantly, and the reason there was so much hatred was because they preached Christ crucified and that Christ had risen from the dead and that Christ was the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that all must repent and turn to Him if they wanted salvation. That was the message they were proclaiming. And that's where the rub was lying for them. They preached Christ crucified which, as Paul says, was a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The Bible makes it clear that the cross is offensive to people. Why is it offensive? There's a clue. Galatians 5, Paul says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So what Paul's saying there is, that, you know, if I'm telling you to meet a list of requirements, of, of religious duties. If I'm just telling you to, to uh, fill up this checklist of religious activity, then in that case, then I wouldn't be persecuted, would I? 
Because that's what everybody else is saying. They're saying, follow these rules and you'll be saved. But I'm telling you about the cross. And the cross is not a set of rules. See? If I'm telling you to meet a list of religious requirements like circumcision, then no one would be upset. That's what people actually want. People want a checklist, an easy list to fulfill in order to get to heaven. You know, I've, I've, I go to church and I do this and I do that, and at the end of the day, when I stand before the pearly gates, God's going to see that my goods outweigh my bads, so I'll be allowed in. See, that's the kind of thinking that is an error. You feel like you're good enough. You earned it. But that's not the gospel. The cross is offensive to people because it tells you that you are not good enough. That you cannot do it on your own. You cannot earn salvation. The other religions of the world tell you if you're good enough, you can please God and reach heaven. Paradise, nirvana, etc. Whatever the case might be. Whatever the religion is that you follow. But Christianity says no one is good. No, not one. Therefore God Himself took on human flesh. He came and fulfilled all righteousness for us because we could not do it ourselves. And He died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins that you so easily commit. I went with Scott and Andy last night to see a movie. Uh, it's called The Water Diviner. Russell Crowe's in it. It's a really good movie. And it, uh, it's a long story. I couldn't even begin to share it with you. Uh, but I'll, I'll give you the kind of the gist. But one line, and it really struck me. Uh, this movie is about an Australian man who lost three sons at the Battle of Gallipoli. Uh, it was one of the battles, main Australian battles in World War I. And his wife is distraught and she ends up uh, dying. And so he travels to Gallipoli to seek out the remains of his, his three sons. And, and he, he uh, stealthily goes to the battlefield because it's a forbidden place because they are excavating it, trying to record the dead that are there. And when he gets there, you know, illegally, uh, they turn him away and tell him to, to go away. You're not allowed here. But he will not leave. He refuses to leave. And one of the leaders who is there, who's helping conduct the, the excavation, uh, he encourages, hey, why don't we help this guy? Why don't we help this father find his sons? And, and that leader is asked by another leader, why should we help this father search for his sons? There's so many here. So many lost sons. And the, the other leader replied, because this is the only father who came searching. I thought, well, what a great picture of God. Jesus is the only God who came searching for His lost children. Allah did not come searching for His children. Buddha did not come searching for His children. Neither did Confucius, or any other so-called God or religious leader you could list. Only Jesus. Only God became man and suffered in our place. The rest will tell you to find your own way back. You, you get on the path. You get on the journey. You follow the rules and then maybe you'll get there. But Jesus came and met the requirements for us because we are unable to do it ourselves. We are dead. It is only through 
coming to that place where we recognize that we are moral and spiritual failures, that we can't do it ourselves. It's only through humbling ourselves and coming to Him, agreeing with His assessment of our condition that we can be saved. And that's why the gospel is offensive. People don't want to admit that. They don't want to admit that they're not good enough, that they're moral failures, that they cannot earn God's favor just through trying harder. Now that is the only legitimate reason for the world to hate Christianity and Christians. And that should be the only reason the world hates us. Often we give the, the world many reasons to hate us through our unchristlike actions. But really, only the offense of the gospel is what should offend the world. And it does offend the world. We are in this battle. And as a church and as individuals, our primary function, especially as a church, is to glorify God by proclaiming this message of the cross of Christ, this unpopular message of salvation by grace alone. If the world hates us, we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus told us that it would be this way. So we had this battle on our hands. We have an enemy, uh, enemies of the cross, as well as the spiritual enemies, the forces of evil that are working against us. But we are not weaponless. Look at the second point. Christ's kingdom has weapons for this warfare. You'll notice what the Christians are doing in verse 5 after James is killed and Peter is thrown in prison. Verse 5 tells us that Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer. That word earnest means fervent, intense. They agonized in prayer. It's the strongest word possible. And it's from a verb which means to stretch out the hand. They were stretching out their hand. They were stretched out in prayer. They were, they were giving it all they had, laying out their case before God, not satisfied until they got a yes or a no from the Lord. That is fervent, earnest prayer. That's what they were doing. In Ephesians 6, Paul describes for us the full armor of God. He tells them to put on the full armor of God, uh, take up the shield of faith, take up the sword of the Spirit, take up the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. And he caps it all off by saying, when he lists off these things, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You see the totality. You know, it's not enough just to put on the armor of God to exercise your faith and to have salvation and to, to put on Christ's righteousness, but you must actively pray. That's really the only action word in that whole uh, passage about the armor of God. Praying in the Spirit. Praying. Constantly praying. This is a weapon of our warfare. It's the most active thing on the list. It's the, it's the capper for it all. And that's where we find the church here, in earnest, fervent, corporate prayer. They met together, which is where we find them when Peter escapes and comes knocking on the door. This is a great lesson for us. Earnest, corporate prayer is effective in the battle we face. You notice uh, the, the answered prayer here. 
You know, what is Peter doing? It's amazing that uh, he knows that Herod is not going to, Herod has waited to kill him until the Passover and then the days of the seven days afterward are over because it was unlawful to execute someone on this holy, uh, on these, in these holy days. So Herod is such a hypocrite. He's following all these Jewish laws, but then wants to kill uh, Peter. And he ends up killing the guards because Peter gets away. So quite uh, hypocritical on his part. But what is Peter doing as the people are praying for him, as he's waiting to be executed? He's sleeping like a baby. He's got chains on. He's kicked off his shoes. He's kicked back, and he's, he's completely entrusted to the Lord. And the people are praying. And, the, and the, the prayers of God's people overcomes all these obstacles because Peter was chained between two soldiers and then guarded by two sets of sentries at the door, locked behind an iron gate. Prayer cut through them all. They prayed. God said yes and sent His angel to free Peter. But what about James? Did they not pray for James? I'm sure they did. Surely they prayed for James too if they had opportunity. But God said no. God must have said no in that case. And it's okay for the believer. As Paul said in Philippians 1, For me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor, labor for me. He's going to serve God, serve Christ if he's in the flesh, if, he's, if he lives. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. James died, but he was better off because he was with the Lord. And that's okay. Just like Peter, James had entrusted his life to the Lord to dispose of it as he would. And that's exactly what he did. So the people probably prayed for James as much as they prayed for Peter. But in one case... The Lord said yes. In one case, the Lord says no. In either case, it's great. It's okay. It's exactly what God wants. Stonewall Jackson, the great general of the uh, war between the states, he had a great faith in the Lord, great faith in God's providence. And he said, you know, he would often ride high in the saddle right into the battle and, you know, people are you know, shooting at him because he's the general. And he didn't seem to be nervous at all. And people asked him about that. And he said, My religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready, no matter when it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally brave. James and Peter, in the midst of their trial, facing death, were brave because they entrusted themselves to the Lord. Even if God says no to our prayers, we know the believer is secure. God has His purposes for every believer that are in that believer's best interest because He's a loving Heavenly Father. James went home to be with Jesus. Peter had still more earthly service to render to his Lord, and he did. So let us not be discouraged by the no's that we receive to our prayers. Let us not be discouraged by the weights. When we receive the weights, continue to pray, taking up the weapon of prayer fervently and corporately, understanding that we are in a battle 
And God is in control, and Christ will be the victor. Prayer meeting tonight starts at 6 o'clock. We'll be in the library, and if so many people come out that we can't fit in there, we'll come in here. 6 o'clock. Corporate fervent prayer. Now finally, quickly, Christ's kingdom has certain victory. Here we have one example at the end of the passage of one of the foes of Christ's kingdom succumbing to the judging hand of the Lord. Tells us that Herod was there. He was with Caesarea with some people, uh, some of his subjects, and he gives this great oration. You compare that to the account in the the, the Jewish historian Josephus. Uh, he tells a similar account. Josephus tells us that he he goes on the second day to a, to speak to these people, and he's wearing clothes that are made out of silver. And he comes in the morning to deliver this oration to these people. And the, the, the morning sun is hitting him and, and, he's, and he's glowing with this silver outfit that he's got on. I, I laughed in Sunday school, you know, it's kind of like Elvis, you know, you know, he had this cape and maybe, and he was thinking that he was the greatest thing ever. And so they start chanting, the voice of God and not of man. And he was struck down and eaten by worms. Josephus tells us that it took five days, that he suffered for five days. I think probably from a man's perspective, uh, he had worms, and something inside exploded. It's disgusting to say that right before lunchtime, <laughs> but that's what happened. And he suffered there for five days until he died. Judgment on Herod Agrippa is just one example of the total victory Christ will have over his and our enemies. Now let me sum it up because my time has run out. In verse 1, you read that an earthly king, King Herod Agrippa, violently opposed the church, seeking to stamp it out. We have this whole account. You know, there's stuff in there I left out, but this whole account of, of, of this battle going on. But what's the end of it say? What's the end result of all that is going on? Verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod tried to stamp it out. He got stamped out. Christ's kingdom, Jesus said, I will build. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Herod was a representative of the gates of hell and he did not prevail against the church. Revelation 17, I love this verse. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Martin Luther put it well. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours, through him who with us sideth. So, let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom 
is forever. Let us pray.